morning church uh, the reading for today is from Isaiah 53 who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. When the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal day. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Will you sing that refrain with me? Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace the word of the Lord. Please join me as we pray together. Give us ears to hear your word, Lord. And give us hearts to receive this word as good news for us and for the world. And each and every week as we explore these questions and these conversations, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would not only refamiliarize ourselves with these, but that you would work a kind of an excitement in our hearts so that we would become people who would want to engage in meaningful conversations with others 
indeed to invite them because of your love and our love into those conversations. So refresh us in the life of Jesus this summer as a community. Speak to us. And as you speak, your servants are listening. Amen. Jesus was always going to die. There's actually really never a question about that as we read the scriptures and as we reflect on his life. Isaiah, who wrote the passage that we just heard, Isaiah 53, writing about Israel's Messiah in this description of a brutal, punishing death, knew it hundreds of years ago, before Jesus. He knew that the Messiah was going to die. Anna and Simeon, two very old people who received Jesus' parents when he was just eight days old in the temple, they knew or had a strong, strong inkling that trouble was going to come the way of this baby. They knew somehow in some way that Jesus was going to die. And Jesus knew it himself. He knew from very on his formation even if he struggled against it as a human being, he knew that he was going to face death. He said this to his disciples when they were struggling with this reality, when they were actually rebuking him. He said this, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed. Jesus was always going to die. All of the pointers, all of the indicators, all of the politics of his life were heading him in the direction of Jerusalem and the cruel death on that cross. Fleming Rutledge, the great American preacher, asked the question in her book, Crucifixion. She actually asked it in our sanctuary when she was preaching here several months ago at Knox Church. Why the death? And why the horrifying character of that death? Why the brutal, unnecessary character of that death? And in response, because her answer is that Jesus had to die in order to save us in every way, all of us, everyone from the beginning of time to the end of time, in order to save us from everything that we need to be saved from, in order to renew us in every way that we need to be renewed, Jesus had to die. And so Fleming Rutledge, in the next several hundred pages of her book, Crucifixion, explores, as we did through the season of the cross, the season of Lent, the different angles on the cross, in order to, to get a sense of the largeness, the immenseness of Jesus' death and its impact. In Isaiah 53, it's not only the cruelty that comes across in the prophet's description of the death of the Messiah. It's also the breadth and the depth. Using, like the other scripture writers do, and beautifully and poetically as only Isaiah maybe can in the psalmists, 
touches on different aspects of the result of Jesus' death. He looked after our sin and our iniquity, forgiveness. He offered us healing. By his stripes, we're healed. He offered us peace, reconciliation, broken things and broken people and broken relationships made new, restored, recreated according to God's good purposes. And we could add to this with the allusion to Luke chapter nine, when Jesus is struggling with his disciples, we could add to this because it was Satan, according to Jesus, who was saying that the son of man wasn't going to die through Peter. In the cross, Jesus also overcame the power of evil and the finality of death in our lives. No wonder the death of Jesus is at the very center of the Christian story. You can try to make principles of it and to talk about that it means living a sacrificial life, that it means servanthood. It does mean a sacrificial life. It does mean servanthood. But the reality of that sacrificial life that we're invited to, the reality of that servanthood as people made in the image of God is rooted in the way in which the Son of God, Jesus, did die. And not only died, descended into hell. This was a real death for real people with deep issues from the beginning until the end. Jesus died to save us. He died to renew us in every way that humanity needs these things. The Alpha Ministry really does get to the heart of this issue of the Christian faith. It not only is a winsome conversation around tables with a meal, but it's one of those winsome conversations that makes no apology for the, the quality or the direction of the content. There's an invitation to explore, there's an invitation, it's a beautiful in invitation to ask questions. But the Course directs the conversation right to the heart of the faith. And that's why after who is Jesus, we talk about why did Jesus have to die? There's no surprise, in other words, that this would be number two. Think about it. The human need for forgiveness. The human need for healing the human need for peace and reconciliation, for the putting back together of all of the broken hearts and all of the broken places, all of the broken relationships. Isaiah actually develops this a little bit further. He actually builds on Isaiah 53 and another beautiful passage that has been actually alluded to in our worship already through song this morning. When he talks about why the Messiah is coming. In Isaiah 61, we read, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, and he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, to release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
I wonder if you notice the layers of human problem that are articulated in Isaiah's vision. It's not just one thing. It's several issues that confront and break and minimize and crush human beings. Poverty, brokenheartedness, and imprisonment sit at the center of Isaiah's vision for what the Messiah will be involved in. And what does this do for us? What does this do for us is it helps to remind us that the Christian faith at its very center asserts, makes this assertion, that the God who is God, the true and living God, the God who was revealed to us through Jesus Christ, is the God who enters directly into the deepest and darkest pain of human life. Now, if you have any real relationship with somebody else or a community of people, whether it's your family, your parents, your closest friends, your colleagues who confide in you, if you have any awareness of what's going on in the world today through the news media and through our ongoing narrative of what's taking place, you're gonna know that there are huge pockets in the human heart and in the world that are broken, that are dark, that are hopeless, that are filled with unfortunate violence, unnecessary violence of people crushing other people, poverty, brokenness, imprisonment, you name it. And if we're gonna invite people, our friends, our colleagues, our neighbors, into a meaningful conversation about anything, it seems to me that those topics of human need need to be addressed, need to be put on the table. And so that's why we shouldn't be ashamed of getting right to the conversation, why did Jesus die? Because Jesus died in order to show us that the God who made us and the God who is calling us each by name, the God who loves us, is a God who enters into every spiritual, emotional, relational, political reality that we can know and we can imagine. Doesn't that give us something to talk about? Shouldn't we be renewed in that understanding when we're having those conversations in the coffee shop or over lunch or in the neighborhood or in the hall of the condo or the apartment? Shouldn't we, as we listen to people's stories, and you probably have noticed that more and more these days in a kind of a psychological world, people will tell their stories more freely, maybe than they did in my parents' generation or my grandparents' generation. And shouldn't we be really strengthened and encouraged that the faith that we have in Jesus Christ at least raises that brokenheartedness, at least raises those issues of sickness and disease, at least raises those broken relationships over years in order to restore them. Who of you could not be encouraged to point to Jesus 
as God's expression of God's way of entering into the darkest and the deepest places. Who of you does not know that pain yourself? Who of you does not know that lack of forgiveness yourself? Who of you has not worried and agonized over the place of the poor and the frustration that even in the 20th century with all of the food and all of the technology and all of the communication and transportation that we still can't seem to wipe out poverty, all the technology and all the human ingenuity, we still can't wipe out disease. With all of the fairness and reasonableness and rationalness around that we still incarcerate hundreds of thousands of people around the world, in many cases for things beyond what they deserve. We should expect a rigorous conversation around those tables. Winsome is one thing, but rigorous is something else. And rigor is what Isaiah wants us to hear about the coming of the Messiah. This isn't a hallmark greeting card quote. This is a vision that the people who hear this vision and who can take on this vision of their own are encouraged to step into and to live into to experience it for themselves, and then also obviously, as Ken reminded us earlier in the confession and the assurance of pardon, to become people who embody this, working with the poor, offering forgiveness in Jesus' name, visiting those who are sick and those who are in prison. Everything that Jesus taught takes our minds back to the cross. Everything that the apostles teach about Jesus take us and our minds back to the cross and Jesus' death. It is the central thing about our faith. But so many of us think that our faith is this increasingly archaic mythology that doesn't have any relationship to the lives in postmodern 21st century urban life or around the world. And yet what we need to be renewed in is that God is a God who is just not so far away that he doesn't care. But the God revealed to us in Jesus Christ is a God who comes close. He is God who is with us. He is God who is for us, surrounding us, leading us, guiding us, providing us with everything that we need to walk with strength and courage and love in the world. Because every brokenness, every story, every disease, every sick person, every longing heart, those needs have somehow, some way, been met in Jesus Christ. Does that mean around those alpha tables that we're going to have the exact precise verse or answer for every question that's asked? I hope at your table, a philosopher from U of T doesn't show up every single night. Really, I hope that they do. Because I believe like the saints of old, you'll be given a word for them. 
You won't be able to say like Moses or Jeremiah, I, I'm not really a good speaker because the Lord's gonna say to you around those conversations, don't you worry, I'm gonna give a word. I'm gonna put a word on your lips and you're gonna speak for me. But understand that the speaking is such good news. And Jesus himself was so taken up with this vision of Isaiah that the very first time he went into church, he went to the temple and he was the scripture reader for the day. The scripture that was given to him to form his identity was Isaiah 61. And he read it and as he read it, there was a proclamation in and through the scriptures and in and through him that he had come for the poor that he had come to bind up the brokenhearted, that he had come to set prisoners free. Go deep in this word. Go long in this word. Refresh yourself in how this word and this person of Jesus Christ has offered you comfort for your brokenheartedness. Remember back for the healing that you've experienced because you have received Christ as your Savior and you have committed yourself to following him as Lord. Go back to those lonely times when you have felt so far away from people and so far away from God, maybe even so far away from your spouse, your closest friends. And be refreshed that through Jesus' death on the cross, your sin, the brokenness that is your responsibility, that you are culpable for, the relationships that you've experienced that are broken, the sadness of those people that you love the most or those people that you're constantly hearing about and God is placing their plight on your heart. Go deep in this for yourself. And as you go deep like Jesus did in Isaiah's vision, you can become a person like Jesus did in the power of the Holy Spirit to be used by God for conversations and for more. To be involved in the community of the church, in the brokenheartedness, in the poverty, in the neediness, in the imprisonment of other people. I'm going to finish with two, two stories. One is forgiveness. You know that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian writing about marriage, says that in marriage we live by forgiveness every day. It's the best advice I've ever heard on marriage. In marriage we live by forgiveness every day. I'm just praying that Karen understands that, you know, every day. And I'm grateful that Karen actually has extended forgiveness to me at least every second day for 32 years. This summer I went to our camp's 50th anniversary. And I'd missed the 30th anniversary, and so I got slagged. Even before texting and email, I got so many telephone calls saying, where in the world were you? Why didn't you show up for this? Uh, this reunion, it was an amazing time, but you were missed. And it was nice, but it was a slag. 
And so 20 years later, when the invitation came to gather at our camp up in Orangeville, um, I said, I, even though it was a lovely long weekend with our family at the cottage, I said, I got to go to this reunion. And unexpectedly at the reunion, I bumped into a former girlfriend. Always a little awkward. At least I find. But this particular girl who I dated over 30 years ago and have never talked to or seen since was a girl who was a great friend. We had a great, great dating relationship. But in the midst of it, I fell in love with somebody else. It, it, it happens. And in my early 20s, I was not mature enough to be able to have those conversations with her that I needed to, to explain the direction of my heart. And so I just stopped talking to her. And it hurt her, I knew that. Our camp pastors came to me and said, you know, you really should have this conversation. And I just sort of told them to mind their own business. I gotta tell you, I have never ever forgotten how unnecessarily cruel I was to Andrea. Every time I've heard her name, every time I've thought about her, I've thought about that mistreatment, which came at a time in her life that actually affected her along with other influences in her life very, very deeply. And so when I saw her at the reunion, I sat right across the table at these big long tables, like no tickets, no seating plan. There she was, right across the table. I gave her a hug and at the end of the meal, I asked if we could talk. We walked down the lane, same way we would have walked when we were dating as staff members at camp. And I apologized. To be accurate, 33 years later, I apologized. And I burst into tears when I did it. I simply said to her, I wasn't mature enough to have that conversation. I was confused in my heart. I just didn't know what to say. I'd fallen in love with somebody else and I just didn't know how to sort my crap out with you as it were. And she burst into tears. We had a hug. We had a conversation catching up on the last 30 years. I forgot about the rest of the festivities for the evening. I drove home, I cried my eyes out all the way home. Because I needed to hear her forgive me. I needed to hear a reminder that I'm forgiven by God for those things that I have willfully done to sin against another human being. The need for forgiveness in the human heart runs long and deep. And that forgiveness that we are longing for in the deepest ways 
only comes when Jesus, the perfect sacrifice of God, takes the sin of the world on him and becomes our sacrificial lamb. And if you don't think that your colleagues and your neighbors and your family members, if you don't think that forgiveness is an issue for them that runs long and deep, you're not only missing the gospel, you're missing the heart story of your friends and your neighbors and your colleagues. The second story is one that several of you have asked me to tell, maybe in a different context, but why not use it in service of the gospel this morning? Most of you know that uh, about three weeks ago, or maybe it's a month now, I had the unusual privilege of visiting Angola Prison, the Louisiana State Penitentiary near Baton Rouge, Louisiana. The largest high maximum security prison in the United States. 18,000 acres, larger than the island of Manhattan, New York. It is a 21st century prison farm, growing vegetables, raising livestock, horses, you name it, they've got it, on miles and miles of fertile property for the rest of the prisoners in all of the state of Louisiana and even beyond. The, just the magnitude was overwhelming. Over 5,000 prisoners incarcerated, mostly high, high percentage Afro-American males. There are now 800 to 1,000 females at Angola prison because of a flood in their prison several weeks ago. Located down on the Mississippi, surrounded by um, walls to keep the water back that are 70 feet high, Miles of fences, thousands of pounds of razor wire, towers everywhere, just over, overwhelming. The thing that caught my attention the most was the size of the cemeteries in the prison. Rows and rows and rows of white crosses. Because the saying used to be about Angola prison that when you go to Angola prison, they throw away the keys. The state of Louisiana has the most severe penalties for egregious crimes anywhere in the United States. And up until a very short time ago, life meant life in Angola prison. So you lived there and you died there. Only recently, Secondly, in Louisiana, if you committed murder one, first degree murder, you murdered someone on purpose with a plan, you would be put to death automatically until the Supreme Court stepped in a couple of decades ago and changed that. But death row at Angola prison still has 93 people. But there's a kind of a increasingly documented revival taking place in Angola prison through the work of one warden, Burl Cain, who in his first time ordering the execution of a prisoner realized that he had not talked to that prisoner but his soul. And from that time on, and the voice of his mother insisting that he care for these people's souls and not just for their imprisonment, 
he started to invite on to the prison the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary to teach courses in scripture and Christian theology. And after 25 or 30 years of this teaching, Angola Prison now trains its own pastors who are mostly life inmates themselves and mostly first-degree murderers and other egregious crimes, most of whom are going to stay in Angola for their entire lives. But they work as pastors, pastoring other people in this immense, enormous prison that even my words cannot describe the size and the magnitude of this. When Pearl Cain first became the warden, gangs ran the prison behind the scenes in each of the sections of the prison. So those of you who have driven out and seen the penitentiary in Milton on the highway, think, think of prison areas, think of 10 of those plus another gigantic one as being Angola prison. And gangs ran the thing. Drugs were available. In one section alone in one year in the 1980s, over 70 people were murdered, inmates, by, by inmates. After 25 years of this renewal, there are now over 30 churches worshiping communities in Angola prison. The guards inside the prison of this highest maximum prison no longer wear firearms. As guests, after you show your license and click and show your license and click and sign on the dotted line to make sure you are who they think you are and you say you are, and you walk in, in the middle of the main prison is an enormous Catholic church and an enormous non-denominational non-Catholic church for the worship with prisoners walking in and out of the sanctuaries all day long. Something has taken place at Angola Prison. It is most unbelievable. I had the opportunity to be in a retreat with 18 prison pastors, whose names I have totally memorized are in my heart. They are pastors in every way that I'm a pastor or any of our colleagues at Knox Church are pastors. They preach, they lead worship, they listen to people's confession, they baptize people, they disciple people, they care for people, they have their own hospital and hospice where they cared for one another and they bury people, they bury their friends. Being with those pastors for three days and recognizing the depth of their sin and recognizing the beauty of their hearts and the depth of their love for God and their passion for being pastors, even though most of them have no chance of becoming free, set my mind to spinning about what freedom really is, whether hope is actually possible. By the way, most of the pastors in the group freely admitted that they were responsible for their crimes. They were not arguing that they were in prison unjustly. There were two of the 18 whose stories they say were about unjust confinement of the system going against them. But 16 of them owned the fact that most of them had taken somebody else's life. 
They weren't happy with it. They weren't glorifying it. They also weren't going back on the details, most of them. But they were more living into the forgiveness and the healing that Jesus had given them. My trip to Angola prison, I see those cemeteries and those white crosses. And I see these pastors. And there are dozens more than the 18 that I met and became friends with. I start to realize I know why Jesus died on the cross. He died in order to forgive the deepest and darkest, most horrific sin that human beings can ever imagine. And he died in some sense to set those prisoners free from being bounded by their sin. And he died to offer a depth of love in that prison where prisoners, instead of killing each other, are now visiting one another when they have cancer and burying one another. It's easy to glorify the story, but here's the thing. The model of Angola prison is now being put into place in other places. Friends of mine who are professors at Calvin College in Michigan have now started a theological program at the main penitentiary in the state of Michigan, and it's working. The warden, in after a short year or so of the program, is now asking the leader of the program, theological program from Calvin College, to speak to 13 of his colleagues from Midwestern states to speak to them about the power of Christian training to transform not only individuals, but prison life. This is not about getting people out of jail free. This is about the transformation of the darkness of the human heart because Jesus went to the deepest and darkest places to give his life. And that's the kind of thing, it seems to me, that people need to hear. That's the central message of the Christian faith, that Jesus, who was very God and fully human, died on a cruel cross for you and me and our salvation. This is political, relational, personal, economic. Every issue that you can think of, at least that is our working, believing theory. That God is a God who enters in to the darkest, most broken places in our lives in order to offer us salvation. My friend John Rotman, who's a professor at Calvin Seminary, said to me that he is starting to hear whispers in his series of connections around the United States that if revival is going to come to the United States, it is going to come first in its prisons, not in its local churches, but in its prisons. And the reason he would tell you if he was here is because the impact of the gospel on human beings who are so completely guilty and broken that the gospel has been applied to their hearts in such a way that prison wardens are noticing transformation in a way that they cannot explain 
in any other way other than miracle. Evangelism and prisons coming together, who knew? And who knew that Billy Graham's wife, Ruth Bell Graham, is buried in a coffin built by prisoners at Angola Prison? And who knew that Billy Graham's coffin, which is awaiting his imminent passing, has already been designed and built by the prisoners in Angola Prison? Something about the connection of the good news of the gospel setting people free, finding their true calling in God, even though they have experienced the deepest and the darkest and the most brutal that life has to offer and throw against them. Boy, we've got a lot to share around these tables. We've got a lot to share about Jesus and the good news with our friends and our neighbors. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be worried that we don't have the words. The story is already here. It's been given to us. And we're experiencing it in ourselves and together and with our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, in churches and in prisons, even when they're hungry and struggling with all the deepest and the darkest in life. Jesus was going to die all along. He was always going to die. There was never a question. This is the central and the most important offering gift of the Christian faith. It's good news for Angola prison. It's good news for the people in those Alpha conversations. That's good use for you and me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me pray with you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would take the vision of Isaiah and that you would place it deep within our hearts and that you would nurture a compassion within us for those people that we know and need to hear and to experience this good news. Amen.